is our role in the left-hand kingdom. What God's Word teaches about what governors ought to do and be about, and then our response as citizens to those governors. And then right down the line with the family unit as described, um, marriage, children, and work. With a few additional things tacked on at the very end. Uh, just catch all types of items. But that's the structure of the table of duties. And really the way that Luther understood this is that this ought to be, this ought to be um, in a sense, in a sense, the constitution of the household. In a sense, this, the, the, the table of duties in particular, of course, the, the whole small catechism works in this way. But the, but the table of duties in specific should find their place you know, on the dining room table to be read periodically, perhaps even a section a day or weekly, just to remind everyone in the household that this is what's what. This is what's expected, not by man, but by the Lord. So these are our, and again, this takes us away from the romantic ideas that get us all entangled and get us all busy with things we don't even need to be busy with and concerned about things we don't even need to be concerned about. This is beautiful because it's just simply a job description. And the secret of the scriptures and the secret of our faithful teachers all the way through is this point that they continually bring up. We have these job descriptions and we labor for God, not man. So it doesn't matter if your spouse is deserving of it or not. It doesn't matter if your children or parents are deserving of it or not. It doesn't matter if your worker or your boss is deserving of it or not. That is completely and entirely aside the point. You have a job to do and you are serving the Lord and here are the contours of your job. That is actually profoundly freeing. Profoundly freeing. And we're going to see Chrysostom capitalize on this point. Okay, that's enough by way of introduction. Any thoughts or comments you have? Uh, any questions or anything I made unclear? We're okay? All right, let's jump into the text then that Chrysostom's going to treat, which is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, and following this section on husbands and wives. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And see, there, right off the bat, Paul lays this foundation that in submitting your, to your husbands, you're not submitting to them as such. Rather, you're submitting to the Lord in submitting to your husband. Your submission to the Lord takes on the form of submission to the husband. There's not anything at all unequal about this. Um, the example that I frequently bring up is think of, think of the submission of the, of the son to the father. So father and the son, they're both co-equal, co-eternal, light of light, very God, uh, very God. You know, they, they're completely and entirely equal. And yet there's this economy. There's this, there's this um, ordering of the relationship to where the son prays to the father. Father doesn't pray to the son. The son prays to the father. So the son submits himself to the father. It's, it's very much analogous to how God has ordained the husband and wife relationship. They're entirely equal. They're entirely equal beings. Just as God and Jesus are true God, man and woman are, are true man, true human being. And the ordering, the economy of that relationship, how it functions is one where the wife submits to the husband and the husband is not called to submit to the wife. That's just one aspect, but that's the aspect that Paul is capitalizing on here. Of course, interesting to our modern ears that he begins with the female, which he does in another place as well, um, because we're so accustomed to this kind of trope of, well, since the male is the head, it all starts with him always. And while that may have a sort of general truth to it, St. Paul quite clearly violates that rule here and elsewhere. So. And I can, I can hardly think of verses more pertinent to our lives today where unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, feminism, by and large, and I know that there are some redeemable, redeemable components within, but feminism at large is uh, simply contrary to this, teaches women the exact opposite of this to the great harm of marriages and families. So this is quite radical, quite radical. 
Yeah, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So I, when, when the church is functioning as church, properly speaking, in what, in what sense is it submissive to Christ? In every sense, completely beholden to his, to his word. The parallel is as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands. Now, what if their husbands are telling them to do something that is uh, contrary to that which God commands or, um, you know, yeah, what, what, would that, what would that mean? Well, we must obey God and not man. We must obey God and not man. So if your husband, um, you know, forbids you to do something that God commands or commands you to do something that God forbids, then you must obey God and not man. There's also a psychological dynamic that happens here. And I really think that what feminism has really taught women to do is to throw away their God-given power. Because there's nothing more powerful in a marriage than a submissive woman. Because the, a psychological change happens in the mind of a Christian man, probably in all men generally, but especially in a Christian man. When he sees his wife being submissive to him, he all of a sudden says, says to himself, the sinful nature says to himself, why? I could get away with anything. And then you think to yourself, but why on earth would I ever look at this good and godly woman? And the whole... The whole orientation of the husband's being turns towards the wife and he begins to say to her how can I how can I uphold you how can I serve and care for you as Christ serves and cares for the church and so there there's the psychological shift that happens and again the power of women is the exact opposite of feminism feminism tells you that the power of women is to become a man no <laughs> That just means that, I mean, first of all, think of how anti-feministic that is in and of itself. In order to be a true woman, you must become a man. Or what is that but the rejection of what it means to be a woman? Not the fulfillment of what it means to be a woman. But then it also t tells you that in order to have true power, you must act as a man. No, all that gets you is men treating you like a man. And that's disastrous in the home. Absolutely disastrous in the home. So the power of femininity is preci precisely lies in the power of, uh, first and foremost, um, a submissive posture to husband, a faithful posture to God above all, and a service of God and not man, but a service of man insofar as, as it demonstrates love for God. So this is at the heart of every vocation. It's at the heart of the pastoral office as well. Service to the church. Remember how how Jesus says to uh, Peter at the end of John's Gospel, Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. Right? Think, of the, think of that like, like a husband or a wife. Jesus says, Do you love me? Yes, I love you, Lord. Love your spouse. Right? That's how our Lord has it. So, if you love me, show that love by spreading that love unto others. That's the nature of, of vocation. All right, so um, there, submission, very unpopular. I can't think of anything more unpopular, and yet absolutely necessary. Okay, what about husbands? Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now again, this works in the same way. Like The wives are called to submit to their husbands whether the husbands are worthy of it or not. And husbands are called to love their wives even as Christ loved the church. Ha! That's a pretty tall order. But even as Christ loved the church, He is our model and our example. And so we are to love our wives whether they're worthy of it or not. Again, we work for God, not for man. We operate in the paradigm of vocation, not the paradigm of merit or worthiness deservedness. So Christ gave himself up for her. Now does that mean he compromises all his beliefs or says, I don't know, honey, whatever you want. I don't know, church, whatever you decide by your democratic councils. No, that's not the nature of his submission. He speaks the truth. He speaks authoritatively. But when push comes to shove, uh, 
he is going to be the one who lays down his life for the wife. This is manifest, manifest, in the fact that cultures everywhere in this fallen world have males fighting their battles. It is, it is a biblical abomination and it is a, an abomination in pagan, in the pagan world even, to have women on the front lines fighting. That basically shows the cowardice of men. In our country, it begins with the cowardice of men not to, not to simply sub, submit themselves to the order of God and uphold that, no matter how unpopular it is. But then it manifests itself in this idea that you've got people wanting to draft our daughters into, into war. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? It, yeah, it's, uh, in many respects, what the, what the Bible paints is the, as a culture's greatest shame to have women fighting and women ruling is the progressive's dream. <laughs> and here you can see how upside down our culture is. All right, well, husbands are called by Christ and service to Christ to lay down their lives for their wives. I often, I often think this too, and I know I'm not alone, that if, if we ever did enter a state of martial law, if we ever did enter a state where um, there, there simply is no government to protect you, no society to protect you, uh, feminism and all of these impulses would evaporate in an instant. Because, uh, you know, hey, there's something, there's something making, no there's, there's, there's people making noise outside the house. Oh, I believe in equality. You go see to it, Susie. <laughs> You know, where my, you know where my shotgun is. <laughs> yeah, no, no. These things are written into us very deeply. And they have only been, we have deluded ourselves by this sort of delusion and dream that's caused by our affluence and our faulty, false, anti-God culture. But that will all evaporate. So the husband is called to... Uh, you know, and there's, there's an element of this too. There's an element in the fact of, um, yeah, there's nothing in scripture that says a woman can't work outside the house. Okay. So I want to be clear there. Um, but the idea, the idea that a woman might not be built for 40 or 60 hours a week of constantly dealing with harassment and uh, all the all the elbowing and shouldering that takes place in the in, in the workplace. Men are, you'll have to forgive me. This is simply my pastoral opinion. But men are built for that in a way that women aren't. Women are quite emotional, and most of the time they're they're very excited about what coworker said what and what supervisor said this and how do you get through the drama and the intrigue and you know there's there's all these all this personal stuff and emotion involved, where men tend to be much more cut and dry, much less emotional. Much, less, much more mathematical and calculating and just simply like, well, if this isn't working, I'm out of here. <laughs> you know? um, we, in a way, are built for that external conflict. The flip side of that is, I think, the strength of women. It's they're, they're built very much for the household conflict. Uh, it's very frequently the case that the male default is to be too harsh within the home. And the woman softens that, and the woman handles that, and she, she can deal with the internal conflict. Um, when the child has cried out for the 15th time, and dad is just saying, okay, let's just let that go. Mom's going again. You know, She's going to go handle it. She's going to go take care of it. She's going to make sure that the conflict gets resolved in the home. So there's this, there's this reciprocity that we can see amongst the sexes and amongst the vocations. And again, all of this, all of this is glorious to consider and, and to ponder on. And, and even if I don't have it precisely right, we're thinking in lines that are entirely contrary to our culture. We're thinking in ways that are far more biblical than not. And we're thinking in ways that are trying to undo some of the acculturation and uh, some of the conditioning that we ourselves have, have undergone here in the, in the West. All right, so husbands are built for the conflict. They're built for making the difficult decisions and bearing the burden of those decisions. They're difficult for, I mean, they're, they're, um, they're called to lay down their lives in terms of the workplace. I mean, you know. And all that that means, they're called to lay down their lives ultimately if there's some sort of physical threat 
uh, to the household, the wife, or the family. I don't know. I probably haven't covered everything but enough. Now, Paul pivots here to Christ because, as always with the Scriptures, he wants to show forth the glory of Christ, first and foremost. And so he says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and the word. Now, that's where the parallel ends. I mean, husbands aren't called uh, in such a way to save their wives and um, cleanse them by the washing. So you can see how we've departed now into a, a didactic section on, on Christ and his relationship to the church specifically. Verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You know, and this is a beautiful thing because we find ourselves, uh, male and females, members of the church, and the church is the bride of Christ. And here we have, we have this promise, this apostolic word that Christ has indeed cleansed us by the washing of water with the word. What's that? That's holy baptism. Yeah. It's water and the word. It's right where we get it. Okay, so we are baptized that we might be presented to Christ in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any other such thing. And, you know, just to, just to pause and riff on this for a moment, you know, there's two reasons why the Bible is so white and black on divorce and simply doesn't permit it except in cases of adultery or other kinds of extreme cases, abandonment or something like that. But why it's otherwise white and black. The first, the first instance is because the law indeed convicts us of our sin. It convicts us where we've, where we've been divorced in an unbiblical way. It, convince, it, it convicts us when we, when we consider how we haven't acted in accord with the high and holy calling of marriage. It convicts us when we've pondered thoughts of divorce and escape or made those kinds of threats. So it very much convicts us and functions as law. But the other side of this coin is that it very much teaches us who Christ is and what his attitude is toward us. He will never divorce us. The only parallel is just as adultery breaks an earthly marriage, um, idolatry breaks this heavenly marriage. And if we insist upon having other gods b- beside him, then fine, that, that marriage is broken. But aside from that, if, if we will have him as our God and as our, our holy spouse, he will have us and he will never forsake us. So there's so much gospel comfort in that. Because you can always return to him and say, you know, even if you have been adulterous slash idolatrous, you can say, Lord God, have mercy on me. Forgive me my sins. and He will grant his holy absolution. This is very much how the sacraments work. On the cross, Jesus weds himself to us. He says, I do. He says, it is finished. And then that love that he expresses there on the cross, he communicates to us daily and richly um, in holy baptism, in the absolution, and in the Lord's Supper. Sometimes people say, well, why, why if I get forgiveness of sins in baptism, do I need it in absolution? Why if I get it in absolution in, at the beginning of the service, do I need it in communion later? And this is entirely the wrong way of looking at it. I mean, this is like, this is like a, you know, then why do I need any of it if, the, if it all happened on the cross 2,000 years ago? I mean, this is exactly like if a wife would say to her husband, like, maybe, maybe it's funnier if it's, if it's a husband saying it to the wife, you know. Hey, I told you I loved you on, on the day of our wedding. I don't need to tell you anymore, do I? <laughs> How's that going to work out? I mean, that's like saying, hey, Jesus died 2,000 years ago to take away my sins. I don't need any other, any other communication of the forgiveness of sins. That's sufficient. I mean, that's, it's, it's plainly idiotic. And then, and then think about this, too. Like, like what wife would say, well, if my, if my husband uh, embraces me and gives me, a, gives me a hug, that's all I need. I don't need sweet words or tender kisses either. You know? I mean, that's, that's equivalent to say, hey, if it was all given to me in baptism, then I don't need these other things. So what do we see developing here? We see that our Lord Jesus says, I do, 2,000 years ago on the cross, and he communicates that very same love, which God's love to sinners sounds like this, I forgive you. 
And he communicates that love to us with the embrace of holy baptism, with the sweet words of absolution, with the tender kisses of holy communion. And that is an ongoing in time relationship. So this is where two evangelicals are like, you know, do you have a relationship with Jesus? <laughs> well, in the first place, he isn't my imaginary friend. I have a very concrete relationship with Jesus sacramentally. I am in his embrace, if you'll pardon the, fe the feminine kinds of imagery here, but as I'm speaking as the church, you know, I'm in his, his embrace this very moment in, in holy baptism. He whispers his sweet words to me every time he absolves me. He kisses me every time I take holy communion. Of course I have a relationship with Jesus. How could you not? Every time I open the scripture or hear the preacher preach, I'm hearing my Lord Jesus speak to me present tense. That's my relationship to Jesus in the word and in the sacraments. And it's living and real and concrete. A heck of a lot more concrete than just simply sort of imagining that Jesus is my co-pilot. Right? <laughs> so, beautiful, beautiful um, imagery here of Christ as uh, the... Mm -hmm. Between mm -hmm. Jesus, the church, and the husband's wife. Oh, great point. Great point. Yeah, as, so the comment for those of you online who might not have been able to pick it up, as Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep, you can see this, you can see this sort of, um, this economy play itself out by way of feeding. God feeds us with everything we have, with daily bread. Jesus comes and feeds us. With, him, with himself, with the Holy Supper, with his body and blood given and shed as the Passover lamb for the forgiveness of our sins. Then he gives, he gives the pastoral office to feed in his stead and by his command his holy church and congregation here in this place. And then how does that translate? How does that translate over? We're talking about the right-hand kingdom. How does that translate over to the left-hand kingdom? Luther says, I think it's in the large catechism, that on the, on the real, real fancy... Um, Oh, what are those things called? Like the family, the crests, on the crests of the, of the princes, what there ought to be front and center is a loaf of bread. <laughs> so much for fire-breathing breathing dragons and all of this. A loaf of bread. Why, Luther says, to remind them of their, of their job. Their true job is to feed and protect the people, be a father unto the people. All right, well, that's, that's two of the three states. And then, as, as you pointed out, um, in the familial estate, that's exactly what the father is called to do. Right? To provide daily bread for his household. It, it ultimately falls on him. To work or income or not, it falls on him. So, yeah, exactly. You've got this whole motif of feeding, don't you? And all these different nuances. Yeah, thank you for that. Very insightful. Very insightful. Okay, so this is Christ in his church. And then um, this is how he washes us of every, of every spot and wrinkle. And, um, you know, maybe one other... One other tangent to touch on there. Um, so, you know, divorced, adulterous, very difficult marriages, you know, whatever category you may or may not fall into, you are part of this imagery here where Christ in holy baptism and by his means of grace is washing you and cleansing you of all your sins, presenting himself to you as a beautiful bride and and in perfection. Not, so there are, no, there are no second class citizens in Christianity. The divorced are not second class citizens. We are all forgiven, redeemed, and uh, made spotless and without blemish by Christ. And then one more tangent on that while I'm at it um, is simply this. There are, there are no fault divorces in terms of the church and the way we ought to look at the divorced. I think we have a tendency to say, ooh, you're divorced, stigma. Well, in the first place, that's wrong. We're all sinners. Christ forgives us all. But then we sometimes go like this, like, well, all divorces are the same. So if you're divorced, there's immediately a black eye on you. you know? And that's not true either. While it is certainly true in the, in the vertical dimension that a husband and wife can say, hey, I contributed things and you contributed things and we're both kind of, kind of guilty before the Lord vertically, that's, one, that's, that's only one aspect. We plead guilty before God of all sins. Okay. But in the horizontal aspect, it is very much the case of the, of the spouse who actually commits physical adultery and breaks the marriage, that, that they are the ones guilty of the divorce. 
And we can't simply take this vertical dimension of everyone's at fault and collapse it together. That makes, like, that makes the wife whose husband cheated on him double victim. Double victim. Because not only is he the one who's cheated on her, but now she's being blamed for it. Well, if you were a better wife, he wouldn't have cheated, is effectively the argument. So, so we make of many divorced people double victims in the church. And this is exactly the opposite. If a, if a divorced person is in good standing in the church, if, if it is not, um, if they were at no fault in the divorce, the church needs to rally around them and bolster them and build them up and defend them against uh, the spouse that is guilty of this. Okay. This used to be very well understood. Unfortunately, it's gotten lost in the gospel reductionism of our day. Um, but it is, it is very, very important pastorally, personally, and in terms of our life together as the church that we, that we understand that there are different kinds of divorces. Okay. A man or woman may be divorced with absolutely no fault of their own in this horizontal way of thinking. Yes? So, and then that's it, right? Well... So what's yeah, there is place and role for, for confession and absolution. So if I could, just for the sake of the online, um, you know, some places Jesus speaks in such white and black ways. And again, I've expressed why he does that. A, to condemn. B, to um, assure us of, of his view toward marriage and his marriage toward the church, toward us. But we do a disservice to the scriptures if we read Jesus', uh, Jesus words particularly those words of, um, you know, if, if you divorce your wife and she marries another, you make her adult, an adulterer, and whoever marries her is an adulterer. You know, that kind of language. That's not universally applicable and universally true. In fact, that language is, um, it is certainly true in its own right, and it has a, it has a proper sense in which it's absolutely true. There are aspects of that, though, that are very much akin to Jesus saying, um, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. I mean, what is, he, what is he doing with that logic? He's pressing you all the way to your, you know, he's pressing you by way of hyperbole, by way of exaggeration, so that you see the point of how serious divorce is. Let me give you an example of, of how read in the context of the entirety of scriptures, Jesus' words wouldn't apply. So that would be, um, that would be, pardon me, would someone mind turning down the heat just a touch? If you want to just turn the switch to off on both switches, that would be amazing. Thank you so much. It happened again. I'm the one that said it this week because I wanted to see if I could set it just a little bit. And apparently you can't. Apparently, it's either off or flames of hell. <laughs> Those are our settings here. I'll have to look into that. Um, so, so, so here, let me give you an example. Okay, husband, husband cheats on wife and breaks the marriage. Okay. Wife is sitting there. Wife would be reconciled to the husband any way, shape, or form. The husband marries the mistress, and that's, that's a done deal. What is that wife to do? She says, uh, it, to use the language of St. Paul, I'm not given the gift of chastity. I burn with lust. I desire marriage. What am I supposed to do? Now the, husband sa uh, now the pastor says, here, <clears throat> according to Jesus, this is forbidden. And should you marry someone else, you become an adulterer. And anyone who would marry you is himself an adulterer. Is that what Jesus means? Oof. I don't think so. The Lutheran Church doesn't think so. Um, that, that, so. So what we see Jesus, again, saying, it's proper in its own right, but you have to understand what Jesus is condemning. He's condemning frivolous divorce that was popular at the time where if your wife burns the toast, you can hand her a certificate of divorce. That's what he's condemning. And he's, how is he doing that, like, as I said, by way of hyperbole, by way of demonstrating the point to the absolute, like, hey, if your hand causes you to sin, it would be better for you to cut it off, would it not, than to enter the kingdom of, uh, than, than to go into hell um, without, you, you know, or, or with your, your hand. Sorry. So, how so with Jesus' words? Well, he's saying to those who had frivolously divorced their wives, 
look at the havoc you are wreaking. You think this is just a, a piece of paper that you're handing and then you're f handing over and you're free. No. In that culture, you are, t you, you are taking the woman who was your wife, who in that day and age can't work outside the home unless it's prostitution, right? and you are, you are effectively casting her out so that she become a prostitute or an adulteress. Look at the impossible situation you've put her in. And not only that, but then it spreads like gangrene throughout society, such that any who marries her is an adulterer. So look, you think it's just a piece of paper? Look what you've done. And, and so there's this kind of extremism, which is absolutely true, and true in a proper sense. I mean, is it not true that you would be better to cut off your hand? It absolutely is true. And yet, there's a kind of hyperbole there, such that all Christians aren't amputees. And as we take Jesus' words about marriage, we recognize that there's nuance and there's categories of which our Lord is not speaking or, or teaching upon um, in, that, in that example. Okay, so for a, a, another, I mean, another classic example of this is um, Jesus strictly forbids marriage, just point blank, for any reason, uh, I mean, strictly forbid, forbids divorce for any reason other than uh, s sexual immorality. But St. Paul later comes along and says, yes, well, if your spouse runs away from you and disappears, you may be remarried. <gasps> Has St. Paul violated the Lord who sent him? No, of course not. There's a recognition that in our Lord's words, it's not some sort of universal axiom to be applied to every single instance and situation. It's simply not the way our Lord is speaking. Okay, St. Paul recognizes that. Again, as Lutherans, we recognize that. And if you want to see how not recognizing that plays itself out, look at the disaster that is the Roman Catholic Church. If you're divorced, you can never commune again. <laughs> okay. Um, not only can you never communicate, I mean, and because you can't commune again, then what do we have? We have divorces going, or we have, we have divorces taking place like two decades after the marriage, and they're trying to annul it and say it was never a marriage in the first place. I mean, that's effectively illegitimizing the children. So you get all this preposterous sophistry built into it, as well as the Antichrist once again trying to keep people from from the means of grace and the gospel and the forgiveness of, of God and, the, and reconciliation to the community. So you can see the error of that approach manifest. So I'm fully comfortable with uh, the Lutheran position. I think it is the position of Jesus and Paul. And I think it's, um, it does provide for some gray areas and difficult areas of pastoral care, no doubt about it. But I think that that's, that's a good sacrifice to make if you look at the other alternatives which just destroy people's lives and relationships with God and the church. Okay, so sorry for the long-winded answer. Verse 28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Another way of interpreting, interpreting this, in the same way husbands should love their wives since, and then they love their own bodies. Why? Because the wife is the body. The two truly are one flesh. This is where the Lutherans have no problem calling this a sacrament because it is a mystery. It's not a sacrament in the sense that it bestows or communicates God's grace upon us, but it is a sacrament in the sense that it's a mystery. There are two individuals before the wedding ceremony. There are two individuals after the ceremony, at least by sight. But God's word tells us something that we may perceive by faith, and that is that the two have now become one flesh, the husband, the head, the wife, the body. So husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. I don't think that means that as husbands feed themselves nothing but potato chips and beer, that's all they ought to feed their wives. I don't think that's what that means. <laughs> all right. He who loves his wife loves himself. <laughs> that's, tr <laughs> that's true in at least two ways. 
certainly if you don't love your wife, you're going to hate yourself real soon. 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. So here too, we're to nourish, that's the language of feeding. Husbands are to nourish and cherish their wives. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Of course, a quotation of Genesis 3. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So you have love and respect. Um, the deeper mystery, then, is this. And that's why Paul says the mystery is profound. I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. What is referring to Christ and the church? Genesis, this quotation, a man, namely who? Christ, shall leave his uh, father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Christ leaves his father in heaven and comes down to earth. He leaves his mother on the cross and weds himself to us. That's why I like to think of the cross as the I do. He's leaving his mother in that. So he leaves father and mother, and he does what? Holds fast to his wife, who is the church. And the two, namely Christ and the church, shall become one flesh. What is that but the holy sacrament? I mean, this side of heaven, it's, it's the holy sacrament. On the other side, uh, we'll, we'll see it differently. We'll see it as the fulfillment and climax. But that's why Christ gives us his body to eat and his blood to drink, so that we become one flesh with him. That's why we call it the, the foretaste of the feast to come, and a foretaste of the wedding feast of the Lamb, uh, Holy Communion. So look how beautiful that is. Now, Paul, that's so fascinating, because when we read Genesis, we think about it as earthly reality. When Paul reads it, he thinks about it not only as earthly reality, but even more deeply as about Christ and the church. What does that mean? Before the foundation of the world, God set in mind Christ and his bride, the church. And then he creates this thing called husband and wife in order to reflect that and enact that and to be a sort of living parable or living icon of that. So that in an in ideal marriage, you have the husband showing forth his Christ and the, the wife showing forth the church and the glories thereof. And that in and of itself is attractive and beautiful and glorious and, and a kind of living testimony to the gospel itself. Is it possible that living morally, living according to one's vocation, actually manifests in an embodiment and proclamation of the gospel? Apparently so. Apparently so. Because as a man and a woman become one flesh, Paul says that is Christ and the church. And that it, what, 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 could, what could be the gospel besides Christ marrying the church and becoming one flesh with her? This is where we get male headship. The male is the, the head of the household. The male is the head, the, the woman is the body. From the body come the children. And then let each one of you love his wife as himself. Because what's, you know, what's the problem? If, if males have the headship, what does our sinful nature want to do? Abuse that, use it tyrannically, oppress. And so then here's the apostolic admonition. No, that's not what it's for. You know, in the same way you, husband, love and take care of yourself, you love and take care of your spouse. If there's, if there's a lordship, small l, it's a lordship for good. And then let the wife see to it that she respects her husband, yeah. Which that's a, it's also the terrible tragedy of the indoctrination of our television shows where the husband is always, almost always presented as a doofus 
and uh, and the wife is you know flatly disrespectful. She, she you know treats him as if he's a larger child, and then as a larger child, there's a pecking order amongst the children, and because the children see the the alpha or true head in the family is the is the the mother, then they start pecking on him too to see if they can overcome him and. You have a, like a Homer Simpson type situation, or you can name your own sitcom because there's been umpteen million of them. So that's what happens when when wife doesn't respect her husband. If you have a biblical husband, then what's he going to do? It's just going to be this nasty clash because he's going to say, I don't care if you respect me, but I have a job to do, and no, I'm not going to be treated like a child. So if, I, if that means I have to treat you like a child in order to demonstrate that, so be it. Now you've got now you've got nastiness, don't you? You've got nastiness, and it really all comes to this root of a confusion of our job descriptions. So once again, don't do what feminism tells you. Don't do what modern culture tells you. Don't do what probably 95 percent of marriage counselors tell you to do. Do what the Bible tells you to do. Conform yourself to the job description God gives you. Let the chips fall where they may, and I guarantee, I guarantee that your marriage no matter the circumstances, will be a happier place for you when you simply let go and say, this is what God would have me do, I'm doing it unto the Lord. Beautiful freedom. All right, sorry, I went very long on that, but that's the section, and uh, we had many, many tangents and many topics, but I hope, it was, I hope it was fruitful, and we're going to see many of these themes now arise in Chrysostom as we go on to homily 20. Before we do, are there any questions or comments or you know, did I, did I treat anything abundantly, unfairly? Um, I am a bit given to excess and then I, uh, as a person, and then, um, you know, we're in such a counter-cultural movement. I don't want to overstate the truth, but I do want to combat what I see. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that section, so, so what was brought up, um, and, and maybe if I'm, Maybe if I'm not thinking along your lines, interrupt me and clarify. But what was brought up is after the fall into sin, um, part, of, part of the condemnation or the curse, you know, he gives different curses to uh, male and female. And part of that curse is he says, your husband shall rule over you. Now what, is, you know, what does that mean? That's, that's the million dollar question. That Hebrew word for rule, or Greek in the Septuagint, if you go to its next closest reference, you go into the next chapter where Cain has killed Abel, and God warns that sin shall rule over you. So you must constantly fight so as not to let it rule over you. Now, there's not a direct parallel there, but what does the word, what does the word in that context mean? It's very clear. Um, dominate. Sin wants to dominate, take over, um, oppress, enslave. And yeah, that is, um, that is probably then the impulse uh, or the, the disordering of marriage and the marital relationship on account of the curse at least takes on this dynamic that the husband who was to be head and protector and leader becomes tyrant and domineering. And that that's um, so that the, you know, and I think I think many, in many respects, feminism is a, is a reaction against that, a concerted effort against that. It just goes in the wrong direction. This is, this, is why, this is why even though we as Lutherans acknowledge that marriage is a first article gift, a first article of the creed, God gives marriage to everyone, and you don't have to be married in a church or married with a pastor in order to be married in God's eyes. It, it truly is a first article gift. I mean, we don't say if you weren't married in the church, it's an illegitimate marriage. We don't do that. There's no reason to do that. <laughs> the Bible calls Potiphar's wife, Potiphar's wife, and he was an Egyptian. She was an Egyptian. Okay, so there's no problem. There's no problem there. But that is not to say that all marriages are the same. Because just as there is incredible difference between an unbeliever and a believer, there is an incredible difference between an unbelieving marriage and a believing marriage. Incredible. I mean, light and darkness. Light and darkness. So that, so that the curse and the dominance of man is the very thing that's being corrected here. 
and all. I mean, Paul's, Paul's saying this is, what a husband, this is what a husband in a Christian marriage looks like. How did it look like in Rome, in, in uh, the context in which Paul is writing? It was uh, very, much, very much analogous to the Old Testament, um, well, abuses of the Mosaic law in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, up until the first century within Judaism. So you have this concept of the potter familius, and I, I use it in a more nuanced way, but what that meant in the first century is effectively that the husband was the small g god of the household, to the point that he could put, uh, he could put family members under him to death and not face penalty, not face penalty at all. You want to put to death a slave, a disobedient child, a wife who spoke too brashly, that, yep, go for it. So read, read this then in that context, in, in the context in which it was originally written. Think on, think on the curse. I mean, there is, there is patriarchy, which is in and of itself a good and God-pleasing thing. Run amok. Run absolutely amok. Now, now think of what Ephesians says. Hey, you're not to slaughter your family. You're to be slaughtered for your family. You're to lay down your life. You're to love and cherish and not, not domineer. And yet at the same time, not roll over and become another child and not, or not become the dog of the house, right? So you are to uphold your office, but in these ways. So it is, uh, that's the writing, the writing of the... Uh, but what? But going back to Genesis, you know, what else does that mean? Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, it's so by by human nature, ever since the fall, these dynamics are hard. Yes. Yeah, these dynamics are hard. I mean, you can take any single word that describes how a husband should be, and it's hard for the husband. It's unnatural for the husband to be that way. And the same for the wife. Yeah. Yeah, and then going back to Genesis, I mean, in a, in a sense, I mean, and maybe this is too broad, maybe you don't like it, and that's fine. You can come up with a sharper way of putting it. But really what's, really what's there is, I mean, y- your husband shall rule over you. I mean, it, what, what really emerges here is a battle of the sexes. That's really what emerges in all its forms, whether it's, whether it's marriage or society or, or whatever it is. There's this kind of battle of the sexes that goes on. And that's really, uh, that's really I think, broadly speaking, what that verse means. Yeah. So it's, it's ve- we live in very, very strange times. Absolutely strange. Because um, the vast majority of Hebrew history as recorded in the scriptures and pagan history as, as known from the scriptures and from external sources have, have um, really, really put men in the position where they can get away with anything and the women are the victims. And now in, increasingly in our society, that's entirely flipped on its head. And I won't make the case here, I've made it elsewhere. That's almost entirely flipped on its head to where government has so empowered women that, that males are now stand to be victimized. And, and I increasingly in my pastoral work, I see males victimized. The equivalent, I haven't yet seen it exactly, but the equivalent of the woman saying to the man, I know you've provided me, for me and my children for all these years, and I know you've given me a roof over my head and food on my table and a car to drive, et cetera, et cetera, and insurance and retirement, and et cetera, et cetera. But you've burned the toast. You weren't nice enough. I'm tired of you. You've gotten overweight. Out you go. I mean, and by the way, by the way, I'm going to take half of what you have, and I'm going to take child support. And then guess what? Um, after I've bilked you, I'm going to get married to somebody else who can give me more. <laughs> and what does the government do right now? The government did say to do and say to that? The government is trying to marry the women of our country and allow the husbands to be indentured servants. And as soon as the indentured servant pops off or burns the toast or does something wrong, out you go, sir. So again, uh, it's not to say that women aren't still victims in our culture. They absolutely are. But what's on the rise even, which is just, I think, stunning. And again, just, we are, in, we are in no man's land in terms of history. 
physical abuse being suffered by males in marriage because they can't say anything and they can't do anything and no one believes them and there is no help. And if you as a male call the police and say, my wife just socked me in the gut. I mean, first of all, the response is, well, man up. And then the second of all, the response is, um, well, what did you do to her? And all she has to do is a little white lie. And guess who's going to jail that night? So, I mean, we live in, we live in times where, uh, in, in a place where males really are at such a disadvantage, they stand to be victimized more than, more than females. And uh, the power is, is in the hands of the females. Again, this is the upside downing of, of the order of creation here in the West. Something for you to be aware of. Something for you to consider. Why, why do I say that there was, and, and still is globally, outside of the West, and, and for all of history, why was there very little, if any, domestic violence, wife toward man? Because there was no law against him asserting his physicality. There was no law. That would, just be, that would be understood as, well, if you want to be a man and attack, you're going to get treated like a man and be attacked. You know. So it's a sort of this self-governing thing, unless government comes in and makes the mess it has. Kind of like in a, kind of like in a, in a town where everybody is open carrying um, all of a sudden, everyone's very polite and law-abiding, <laughs> you know, where, where you can exercise your power without uh, governmental interference. All of a sudden, there's, um, there's personal responsibility and personal accountability. Where the government interferes and, and tries to be the power, then it's just a matter of trying to wield that power against another. Okay, well, I've digressed uh, quite a bit on that. Quite a bit today, period. I apologize if that's not your thing. But here we are um, getting into homily 20 next week. <laughs> the Lord be with you.